All right, everyone, this episode is brought to you by Monad, an L1 bringing performance to the EVM with parallel execution and both a custom consensus engine and new database solution. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Before we get moving on today's episode, just a quick disclaimer. The views expressed on this podcast by either myself, my co-host, or any guests are their personal views and do not represent the views of any associated organization. Nothing in the episode should be construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or any other advice. Okay, let's jump into the episode. All righty, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Lightspeed. It's, we got a roundup episode with Mert and I today. And uh, over the ca- last few episodes, you may have noticed a, a, a new co-host here. Uh, quick intro. My name is Dan Smith. I'm leading the analytics product on our, uh, on, our, on, our on our team over at BlockWorks Research. And um, I have been asked to fill the big shoes leaving that Garrett has left. He has uh, done a great job creating and, and hosting this podcast alongside Mert. Um, so I promise I will deliver that excellence that Garrett brought to you. Um, but uh, we'll jump straight into things here, Mert. There's a lot to talk about uh, going on in the Solana ecosystem, but I think one of the notable things to jam on is uh, Coliseum or this uh, Solana hackathon. Can you give us a quick intro on what exactly the Coliseum is um, and why, I guess, the motives behind why it's important to see for the growth of the Solana ecosystem? Sure, yeah. So Solana is known for having pretty large, successful hackathons that have led to the formation of many ecosystem teams today. So teams like Tensor, Jito, Mango, Dialect, and Crossmint, some few other venture-funded companies that are actually quite large today, came from Solana hackathons. And so Solana has about, I think, two or three large hackathons per year. And they're quite large. They get very impressive sponsors, uh, very solid branding, messaging, distribution. So they're a whole thing. And I actually like to think of them as the best hackathons in all of tech, um, personally. And I know that sounds biased, but that's actually partly how I found out about Solana in the first place. Like the hackathons are actually that good. And so Coliseum says, like, okay, there's clearly a lot of talent here. And it's kind of a repeatable process. How do we now turn this into uh, maybe more of a more of a like a YC type deal where you take the winners or people who place high in the hackathons and then you incubate them and you give them advice, mentor networks, uh, intro uh, intros, lessons, and you know other things that you might learn if you're building a company, you give them all those resources and then you give them a better shot of becoming startups and, 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 and companies that actually solve real problems in crypto. Um, and then I believe it's, uh, so Coliseum is actually a fund and they also take some sort of, they, they fund you as well and get some sort of equity in return. Uh, so pretty much as similar uh, as like Alliance Sao or, or YC. And it's headed up by Maddie who is the ex-head of growth at Solana Foundation. Uh, so he really knows Solana and um, he's seen a lot of uh, hackathons and he's actually organized, I think, pretty much all of them so far as well. And so that's that's what it is. And I think it's super exciting because, you know, it's it's hard to do hackathons for like other blockchains because generally you have to focus on infrastructure and scale there, right? Like if you go to like an ETH conference, a lot of people are talking about scalability and like L2s and bridges and, and DA and all this stuff. Whereas on Solana, if you've been to one of those conferences, sure, people will talk about that somewhat, but the relative frequency is much more skewed towards products and consumer facing stuff. and when you have that sort of environment, it's exciting because we're increasing the probability that there's more consumer-facing products that are actually useful as opposed to the necessary infrastructure to scale, right? Where that's kind of the biggest benefit of Solana, which is you don't have to focus on the infrastructure as much. Obviously, I do, but most people don't. And so um super excited for that. And... Basically, uh, another part of it is that um, they're they're super solid for leading to like VC rounds, right? Like a lot of VCs are judges. And so if you have some sort of an idea or a product or like a good presentation, 
you get a lot of chats with VCs and you really increase your chances of being able to raise money and kind of start this whole company, you know, journey. Um, so that's what it is. And then I think, I believe today is the 27th. They have a big announcement. Um, I'm not too sure where it is. I think they're just announcing the criteria, maybe the tracks. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty excited for that. I think, um, the, the shortage of applications in crypto has by far been my biggest problem with the space and something I talk about frequently. And I actually talked about it on the, like the media coverage for our Series A round for Helios uh, like explicitly. Like it just really bugs me how the focus is so much on infrastructure and not on applications. Yeah, congrats, by the way. That's a huge win. And it's great to see uh, an awesome team uh, getting getting the additional funding they need to keep moving. Um, so, so again, congrats on that. Um, you mentioned a lot of cool things there. So the focus on application, is that explicit through Coliseum? Or like if you had a, you know, a great uh, infrastructure idea, could you still go through the Coliseum application process? And, and it's just like, do you just mean it more generally the teams building on Solana are, are, are more application focused because the, the base layer itself kind of lends to being able to build those things there? Yeah, like I'm, I'm pretty sure there will be an infrastructure track because like Solana is more scalable, but it's not like the infrastructure work is done or anything, right? There's still a lot of work there. Um, but so there will definitely be infrastructure teams and infrastructure tracks. So for example, Jito, right, came around and Solana obviously has no mempool and they literally built MEV infrastructure for a blockchain with no mempool. That's pretty wild. Um, so that's a good example of infrastructure. Um, and... So yeah, there, there'll definitely be infrastructure, um, but like you have more room and freedom to actually experiment with products and applications because like there's also a lot of enshrined functionality onto the L1. Like there's token extensions where you can program tokens to be pretty flexible. Like you can be confident, they can be confidential token transfers, uh, interest bearing, yield bearing, et cetera. Um, frozen, soul bound, et cetera. All these kind of interesting functionalities where you'd have to maybe write a contract for on Ethereum they're kind of already built into the L1 on Solana. And so that's just slightly less time that you have to focus or, 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 or and like you obviously don't have to audit it because it's audited centrally. The Dude You Have Solana's program structure works versus some of these other chains, right? You don't have like a bunch of smart contracts implementing the same interface. You have the same program, which obviously has its downsides if, it's, if it becomes centralized or there's a catastrophic bug. But the upside is that when it does work, it does save a lot of time. Yeah, no, that, that that makes sense. And one of the things that I, you know, when you look out at the landscape today, there's a lot of L1s that do a lot of similar things with different twists to them, right? And when you're, you know, as an analyst, you're kind of tasked with judging the staying power of some of these things. And the in the long term, I think things get a little hairier. But in the short to medium term, I think one of the most important um, factors is the developer community, not only around the application layer, but also the base layer. So on the base layer, when you look at Solana today, you know, you have multiple teams building clients now between Labs, Jito, the team that's spun out of Labs, I think it's Anza, if I have that right. And of yeah. course, Fire Dancer and the Jump team. Then you have application developers like Eugene Chen and his uh, his team at Ellipsis thinking about uh you know the fee, the the evolution of the Solana fee mechanism with that recent paper from Umbra, Umbra Research, um, and that is a very important quality, right? It's not it's no longer Anatoly and the core team like pushing this thing forward from all different angles. It's multiple teams that have you know their own mo- motives to improve the base infrastructure. Um, so that's really really important to see uh, at the kind of that core level, but also at the the application layer, right? If you have multiple teams that care about the future of the chain, uh, that really gives you that staying power because those teams are going to invest their resources uh, into into building products that people use. And I, I really agree with you that you know on your your just core idea that we need more applications in this space, right? Like. Uh, we see a lot of this, right? A lot of these cheap DA layers are making building rollups easier, right? But we we just keep creating more block space for for who for the same users, and uh, I just don't see how that's solving a lot of the core problems that. Uh, we kind of are facing right now. Okay, guys, quick break from the episode to talk to you about Monad, the L1 optimizing the performance of the EVM. The team is working to materially advance the efficient frontier in the trade-off between decentralization and scalability. The internal devnet is currently live and public testnet is coming soon. And testing on the internal devnet uh, indicates that the chain can handle up to about 10,000 transactions per second, significantly increasing the throughput capabilities of the EVM. 
This, of course, opens doors for new applications and more interesting use cases, even those with greater complexity and higher usage, to run in a decentralized manner. Importantly, Monad is fully compatible with the EVM and the Ethereum RPC API, which provides EVM developers with the seamless portability for their applications. Given the popularity of the EVM today, this is really a no-brainer. To stay up to date with all of the latest developments, join the Monad community by following them on Twitter and jumping in the Discord. They're a lively bunch, so hit the links in the description below. All right, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, uh, two things there. Um, so the first point is um, w- one of the interesting differences between L1s and L2s is like people talk about fragmentation of like liquidity, but I think like the much more interesting part is actually the fragmentation of like social collaboration, right? Like on an L1, let's say, on an integrated one where a lot of different activity types are, are occurring. Um, if something is wrong with the chain, all those people are working together to help fix that problem, right? So like, for example, Eugene and, and Ellipsis, they're helping with the fee mechanism because it affects them directly. Um, and there's other teams like infrastructure teams, but also NFT teams and standards people who want to help because they're all building on the same shared infrastructure, which can can be bad, obviously, in the cases where that infrastructure is clogged up. But if it's scalable, then then you're in this case where all these people are collaborating on fixing these problems in a unified way. Whereas maybe in the other approach, extreme approach, where it's like the full modules, modular thing, they're not, they're not really, they don't have the same incentives to work on that sh- shared infrastructure because it's like an external dependency in a sense, right? Like if I'm on Arbitrum um, or not Arbitrum, but like, let's say a rollout that uses, can't decide between like Celestia or Ethereum for DA or something. I don't have the same, it's like, well, I can just actually switch these things around. I don't really, I'm not, I don't have skin in the game as much, right? Which is good for me sometimes, but, you know, there's trade-offs in, in, in both directions there. So I think that's like one of the interesting things about having a, a, a community uh, 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 of an integrated album with shared activity because people have skin in the game to work together. And your point about like how it used to be Anatoly and then now it's decentralizing more is absolutely correct. I set up like a research channel where now we have people from like Ethereum, Cosmos, Firedancer, all these different client teams like collaborating on talking about all these different problems. Whereas before it used to be just like people just YOLO shit into prod like two, three years ago. Um, so that's cool. And then uh, this, the second uh, point is the DeFi point, right? So I tweeted something similar. Um, and I was actually inspired by Toronto, uh, which which is a, you know, Toronto is not a very inspiring place. Uh, but, but, uh, the the economy of uh, uh, Toronto feels fake because it's it's just real estate and banking and like they're just trading things between themselves, but there's not really anything being produced, and that kind of reminded me of DeFi. Uh, and this is not a knock on DeFi, by the way. This is just a, this is actually a knock on crypto, um, where for DeFi to actually work, you need to produce goods that are actually have some sort of value in some regard and you trade those around and you, you know, uh, add some financial instruments to, you know, borrow land, et cetera. And then that's how you make markets more efficient. But if you don't have those goods being produced, like real world assets or whatever, then you're kind of just trading nothing amongst yourselves and you're able to, everybody's just farming points because there's nothing actually, uh, worth trading. Like, uh, it's, you know, I mean, at least with a house, I can live in it, but in DeFi, what am I going to do? I just have these tokens that, are just tokens for usually governance, but governance of what? Who knows? That's where the DAO decide, right? Like it's just so. Uh, so I think like the the point that you made is actually quite correct. Where you need to produce things of value for DeFi to really work, and I think Solana has a good uh, starting point here because of Deepin, right? Like uh, like Helium and High Mapper give you some actual like tokens that at least somewhat tie to real world value. Um, and or, and then there's obviously more of an RWA push these days as well with like parcel. Um, and there's like Baxis, which is like just whiskey. Like it's, it's just once you have those kind of primitives start building up, then I think DeFi starts to make a lot more sense. Um, versus on other chains, people just pay you money to use DeFi. Um, so there's like a weird chicken and egg problem. But yeah, so TLDR is like the, 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 the hackathon Coliseum if it does produce these real consumer applications that have real value, then DeFi really benefits. 
Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. And one of those consumer apps that's pretty interesting is Drip. And you guys had Drip on the pod about six months ago, I think it was. And great episode. We'll put the link in the show notes to that one. But if you can just give us a quick one-two on on what exactly Drip is doing, and then we can jump into uh, some of the like their user metrics numbers because they do some interesting things on that side. Yeah. So people get confused about what Drip is like pretty frequently, but... I mean, it's actually really simple. It's basically the same thing as YouTube or Instagram, just maybe more crypto, which is to say you go on it and there's creators, right? And you subscribe to them. And then those creators give you content and that content is tokenized. So basically you subscribe to the creators and then creators give you content in the form of NFTs. And in Solana's case, it's compressed NFTs because that's much more scalable in terms of cost. So like uh, there's like a there's like an artist on Solana called Dijon Poet. It's this guy who literally makes art with typewriters, right? Uh, it's actually my PFP on Twitter. And you can subscribe to him and then he drops you free art. Um, I don't know what the cadence is, but like pretty regularly. And then there's like other gamification mechanisms here where like if you really like this person's art, you can like like their stuff. Um, and it's like a little bit financialized with these things called droplets. And um, if you have like droplets, you might get like a more rare... Uh, like exclusive drop from that person. Um, and then, you know, obviously, if you're the type of person who collects collecting, you collect. If you just want to consume the content, maybe it's like a comic book, then you just consume or you actually want to sell it. People do that as well. And so um, uh, uh, you, you can do all three of those things. And then Vib obviously is a pretty established founder. He worked with like Tony Fidel, right? Uh, one of the early people in Nest. Um, he founded Beta, the kind of the IRL kind of uh, trying out product store in SF. That was actually quite big. Um, he did start Solana Spaces as well. And now he's doing this. So it's like a super high caliber team. And I think the idea was like quite in- unintuitive at first because everybody was so used to the NFT meta of like, okay, here's 10,000 NFTs. This is all you get. It's probably an animated ape. And you can sell it for money if the influencers talk about it enough. Whereas now it's like, well, actually, this is just YouTube and TikTok, except the content is tokenized. And the creators can now make more money. And if the creators make more money, chances are they're going to produce better content um, and and be have more skin in the game for that platform. But also they can't be the platform, right? Because it's crypto. You can just kind of move to if, if Twitter's like, you know, I, I don't like how Mert tweets, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ban him. He 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 talked badly about Gemini or something. They, you can't do that on crypto, right? Uh, it's it's on the same shared ledger. And anyway, so that's um, that's a high-level idea. I guess let's zoom out for a second out of Drip before we jump back in. Getting the active users of any protocol on, on a blockchain is a very challenging thing to do because the barrier to spam is quite low, right? Spinning up an address is like a CLI command that takes five seconds, right? So... It's very, very challenging to determine what a user, how to define a user, first of all, and then how to count them, right? Because you can count very simply uh, using something like Dune, you know, the amount of addresses that have interacted with a certain contract. It's very easy to do. But that number is inflated, like guaranteed no matter what across every blockchain. Um, The active addresses is not your number of human users. We're also getting into a world where are human users really the only real users? Like, we're, we're, we don't have AI agents that are functional today. We have ideas of AI agents. But when we do, is in, you could imagine a world where there's a protocol built exclusively for AI agents. And so we're getting into a very gray area of how to even define what we're trying to measure. Uh, so I, I kind of think it's an important thing to preface before we go into this conversation because, you know, Drip does do some very interesting filtering on their total active addresses to get to a number that they feel confident calling a user. Can you kind of walk us through what some of that filtering looks like in the case of Drip? Oh, okay. Maybe maybe to set the context for why we're having this conversation is because um, uh, I, I tweeted about, so I saw Vib's charts and it said they have something around like 100K daily active, um, which obviously like that number is not perfect, right? No number is, uh, but it, you can see kind of the trend of the number of users increasing over time. And people then started, because I said like, it's, I'm like pretty, uh, let's say loud about not misleading retail. And, and 
I've also said multiple times that DAUs are a totally useless stat on Solana because they are. Uh, on Solana, you can just create accounts at at, uh, at Infinitum, right? Like you can just create millions. And since the transactions don't cost you anything, you can just make those accounts look active. Whereas on Ethereum, it's not the same because obviously the transactions aren't so cheap and the friction is higher. And so I always tell people to not use that account uh, metric, right? And so people then said like, uh, they, they now contrasted me talking about drip to me talking about DAUs in general, which is just, you know, I don't want to say brain damaged, but, uh, cer- certainly, certainly quite, uh, 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 dishonest because a blockchain is obviously not the same thing as an application. Okay. And, uh, not sure why I need to say this, but like drip, for example, the way to count as an active address there is you need to be invited with an invite code from another person, right? You need to uh, you need to sign in. You need to use the app. You need to get past Cloudflare's ML stuff, like Turnstile. You need to have a certain number of page views and your user agent, because uh, like you, the, the metadata on the on the on the site will can generally detect on the internet whether whether you're a bot or not, and they feed that into their ML algorithms, antibot algorithms. So at the very least, obviously that's still not perfect, but at the very least, it's quite different than a blockchain, okay? It's it's an app with business logic that is determined to, to make a best effort because this obviously affects them, right? Like when you go to raise as a company like this, VCs will ask like, hey, how do I know these users are real? And so you need to show the VCs, here's what we use for anti-bot mechanisms and this is why it's correct, et cetera, right? So it's like this affects Vib more than anybody, right? Like not some random people on Twitter. This actually affects him a lot. So he probably thinks about this more than anybody, uh, obviously. And so anyways, so that, that's my rant about how it's not even remotely comparable thing. Um, but uh, so, yeah, but it's, it seems like uh, they, they do have quite a few users, even with all of that. Obviously, again, the 100,000 number it's it's not the actual number of distinct users, right? There's it's some fraction of that, obviously. Uh, but in in Vib, actually, if people are interested, he did release a video on his Twitter about exactly how they run this stuff, like the, the process of anti-bot. Like he actually went through all the charts and the mechanisms and processes they use. And so, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for just somebody who's like that dedicated to even solving this problem, right? Uh, and again, I just want to, and like, you know, let's say, uh, the, the worst thing that you can do, right. Is, is you can go on drip or because you're misled, right. And, and sign up and get free NFTs. Okay. That's, that's it. Okay. Like whereas on a blockchain, you buy the token and the token goes down and you lose money. Like on drip, this is not the case. Like the worst case is you receive free NFTs. So anyway. Yeah, no. So on on the on the first piece, I want to jump in as well, and I strongly agree with you. Which uh, this shouldn't be a hot take, but uh, counting the number of active addresses on a blockchain is a it's it's like a, yeah, it's a silly metric because it's very manipulatable. So on Blockworks Research's analytics tool, we we track all this stuff. They're kind of they're they're you can't take any one metric in isolation, but you put them all together, you can create a trend out of that. And it's very hard to compare something like Solana daily active addresses to, say, Ethereum, as you mentioned, because there's transaction cost differences. Um, and even if you try to compare that to, say, like Bitcoin, like that, the UTXO model and an account-based ledger has very different ways you would count and what an active address is or an active user, right? So you can't even like cross compare these. It's mostly to say, okay, if I look at, you know, where this chain was three months ago and where these metrics are today, can I, you know, am I, am I identifying some trend? I I actually was looking at some of the active address data for the Polygon, uh, the Matic side chain. And it was interesting because I found a trend where essentially there was like a start wallet that had, you know, some 2000 Matic balance. And it would just send it from one address to a fresh wallet, send it from the next address to the next wallet. And this was like basically every other block. It was doing this. And what that's doing, I don't know why it's doing this. I have, I have, I, you know, you can't really trace. I didn't trace it all the way back this to the, is on the This is on the POS chain? Yeah, the POS chain. And uh, it was just one after the other, sending the full balance, leaving nothing behind and sending it to the, to the next address and just continually creating this chain. And so it was creating like 20,000 addresses a day, basically. And that's like a prime example of why it's a very silly metric. Um, 
And, you know, no clear motive to this, but it's a relatively cheap to send a transaction on uh, Polygon's POS chain, especially that's just a transfer of the base token. Um, so it's like very cheap to do this. But the and again, I don't know why it's doing this, but the outcome that is being achieved is address spoofing. Like it is cre- inflating the number of active addresses on the transaction uh, on the chain. So that is why it's a silly metric. And then zooming back into Drip here, Drip probably has the best user filtering uh, methodology in crypto by any application today. If there's an, someone doing it better, I would love to talk to them. Uh, I have not met them yet, had the privilege to meet them yet um, because it's a very challenging thing to do. And so when Drip is saying, you know, 100K daily active users, I do take that very seriously. It's like, to your point, yeah, it's probably not perfectly 100. It is likely a fraction, but they've done some extreme filtering and it's not just like a, you know, like uh, this, like someone with one more than one transaction is a daily active user, some silly metric like that. It's a it's a rigorous process that has multiple checks. And um, there's another thing about like collecting the the droplets uh, for Drip. Like you can't just like buy those. You have to actually be using the platform. Like they have ways to uh, kind of do this. And I guess the issue with why it's so hard to or why user metrics are quite inflated oftentimes, especially on the application level, less the so the blockchain level is, you know, airdrop farming is this huge meta right now. Everybody thinks that they're going to get a free tokens from someone. Um, so it's like, oh, I just go use this, you know, this, this blockchain or this application and I get free money. Um, and it's, it's true. Like a lot of applications are doing this. And so that's why we are facing this wave of like, how the hell do we filter out who a user is? It's good that you mentioned the the metrics and the trends uh, uh, concept because that kind of gives me two ideas that I want to slightly touch on. Uh, what, one is like uh, like the the account based model versus the UTXO model, right? That leads to some interesting things inherently, but but account based uh, uh, blockchains actually also differ, right? Like so, for example, if you have something like a Sui versus something like a Solana. Whereas on SWE, the transactions um, are encouraged to be as decoupled as possible because that's how object the object model works, and that leads to many uh, uh, different TPS. Like what 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 is a transaction, right? Transactions per second, but what that T is, it's super different on Solana, where it can be like, um, for example, if you do something on Jupiter, it might be like seven, eight different routes that it takes through different DEXs. Whereas on SWE. That's actually all different transactions, right? And then people will say something like, well, you know, it has much more throughput. It's like, well, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, it's kind of just packaged up a little differently. Uh, and so it's super important to be careful about that. Um, you know, uh, again, like it's it's not, I, I think the best way to use these metrics is to compare it to like the chain itself. Like right. Solana is at like 1000 TPS, let's say. And then it's now at 2,000 over one year. It's like, okay, it's clearly improved upon itself. Um, obviously, uh, in the context of Twitter, and I'm guilty of doing this, you'll want to compare. Like, you, you need to have some sort of things to compare. Um, but those comparisons aren't perfect. And that brings me to my second uh, comparison is um, uh, I, I, have a, I have a good one here. Um, somebody uh, compared um, – uh, oh, okay, here we go. So – Assuming you believe monolithic chains have a bright future ahead and that liveness is not a critical criteria, say is faster and cheaper than Sol. It is compatible with EVM and it's only a fraction of Sol's market cap. Why would anyone want to buy Sol instead of say? <laughs> bridge to say. That's my answer to that. Well, let me rephrase that. Try to bridge to say. <laughs> and then I, I think I replied like, assume you believe in modular chains that have a bright future ahead and that live is not a critical criteria. Tia is faster than ETH. Why would anybody buy ETH instead of Tia, right? And and like, anyways, like I'm obviously trolling, but like the the like you when you're comparing these chains, right? Like you're saying, say is faster and cheaper than Soul. I mean, I mean, first of all, it's not cheaper than Soul. That, that's just that's just like objectively false. I don't even know where that comes from. Uh, but the faster aspect is interesting because it it, it runs tendermint, right? So uh, that's to say, say has like 39 validators. And I was actually digging a bit deeper. They're almost all in Europe. So they're like pretty co-located. Like they're very near each other. Um, and even then, the TPS, which is actually a, a measure of demand in most cases, uh, these L1s, is still not higher than Seoul. And then obviously when you have 39 nodes versus 3,200 nodes, your finality time is going to be slightly better. Uh, and so that is to say, you can only compare these things, like say in Salon, let's say, if Salon had 39 nodes and they were co-located in Europe, right? 
I'm I'm pretty sure that if that were the case, Salam would be like the fastest chain by a few orders of magnitude, right? Like 39 co-located uh, uh, servers. Um, uh, in fact, I was talking to Anatoly about this a few months ago, but uh, like that would be, like if somebody forks Fire Dancer when it comes out and does that, that would be, and, and somebody will probably do that, <laughs> that would be like the most OP chain of all time. Um, anyway, so that is to say, uh, uh, when comparing metrics, it's, it's probably better to just compare it to where the chain was before instead of where other chains are today because you have to normalize for so many different things that, and like they're totally different models usually, right? Like maybe you can compare like Arbitrum to Optimism because they're both ORUs and, you know, there's some sort of similarities. But even in that case, like Optimism doesn't have proofs. Uh, there's a lot of differences there. Um, so it's it's just very very difficult to compare these things properly. So really get a, when you read these things on Twitter, you're going to be like, wait a minute, like what is actually being compared here? Uh, and just practice some statistical uh, uh, skepticism, let's say. Great points. And it's like the human, it's in human nature to want to compare these things, right? Like that's ultimately what a lot of people are trying to do. They're trying to be like, should I buy this token or that token? Well, let me see which blockchain has more activity, whatever that word means to you on it. And like, I get the the thought process there. Um, but you're right, it's just super, super hard to compare these metrics. And I, I kind of want to take us down a tangent here, because it's something I've been thinking about. And you just brought up the validator count. So I think SWE is really, really interesting tech. I, uh, I'm pretty excited about what that team is doing. One of the things I, I think about there is the trade off that they're making is their consensus mechanism. Um, like you send transactions to every uh, validator in the network. And so you can't just like scale that from, I think it was 106-ish today. Uh, you can't just like add a zero on that without having throughput or excuse me, like latency issues or or communication overhead. Um, and so Tendermint's kind of actually the same way. It's, it's a pretty noisy uh, gossip protocol. And they think the largest Tendermint chain today is roughly 150. Uh, and yeah. they're like, that's kind of the, the the ceiling right now. You could do some work to improve on that, which the, uh, the the teams are very aware of. But it's like, do we need to? Like, is 150 enough? And I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because, you know, obviously Ethereum's at the other side of the spectrum where it's like, you got to run this thing on a Raspberry Pi, baby. Uh, and then Solana is like, honestly, somewhere, I think people think of Solana as being like way to the the opposite side of Ethereum. But like, there's 3,000 nodes. Like, that's it's not a small number. Yeah, we we um, I we we had Anatoly on to talk about this because it's it's certainly interesting. Like when people say like things scale with hardware, they think that like it just scales when you add more cores to the machines or like add higher RAM, which is like one dimension of it. But the other dimension of it is as you keep adding more machines, right? Like most people who aren't technical don't get this, but it's much much difficult to achieve high performance the more machines you have, right? Because those machines have different variants, they're in different locations. The, the, the information has to go through all of them. Like the information has to be synced, right? And so Solana though, due to, and by the way, this is actually due to like the vote transactions that people say are just inflating, uh, but they're actually there for a very good reason. And so if you can create a system where adding more machines doesn't slow you down and can actually help speed you up in certain cases, that's crazy, right? And that's kind of what Solana does. It's not perfect, but that is, I think, and so, like, we, we had Tolly on a few uh, months ago, and I asked him, like, okay, what do you think about these chains with the, with the, with the low value accounts? And his answer is something like, okay, well, like, you know, if I'm some banking executive in, in Silicon Valley or something, I want some guarantees or some high-level heuristics where I can say, like, okay, this is decentralized enough. This is secure enough. Now, if there's 39 nodes, I'm sorry, there's just no way anybody can actually say that's good enough security characteristic, right? Like the SWIFT network has more people, uh, different banks than 39 nodes. And that's already like, come on. And, and so you you need to have at least, because like you're using a blockchain, blockchains take more, uh, uh, you have a lot of different assumptions you have to make when you're using a blockchain. And so is 39 nodes even worth it, right? Like, I, I don't think so. Um, and then like 150, again, I, I don't think that's enough. Personally, because like you, it's it's all about guarantees and kind of these confidence intervals and like uh, one of n assumptions, right? Like the 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 greater the number of n, the 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 better your chances are that when something does go wrong, somebody will detect it, right? 
And that's actually Vitalik. I was looking at some some of Vitalik's old tweets, and he really cares about like he's like uh he, he says something like pretty funny, but he's like he's like I so detest this notion of mountain men that like um there will not be even a single honest person out of like thousands of people to like uh flag like a faulty state transition or something. And that's also what Tolly believes. So like Solana and Ethereum actually are quite uh similar in that regard, where we do both believe that the number of full nodes or the number of nodes that are running on the network is super important. Now, Ethereum um, says like, okay, well, to increase that number, you need to make it as accessible as humanly possible. Uh, and I think that is obviously an important factor and is one half of the equation for me. But I think the much more important part is the incentive to want to run the node itself, right? So you can't just have supply without demand. You must have supply and demand. Right. So, for example, if I run an Ethereum node or whatever, chain X node, and it's super easy for me to run, like a Cardano, but the chain is so weak due to that node requirement that there's nothing that happens in it, why would I run it? Right. Uh, whereas on Solana, it's kind of the opposite. It's like it's, it's really valuable. There's a lot of bot activity, economic activity. I want to run a node to capture it. Can I make it accessible enough so that I can run it? Right. It's kind of like how, uh, for example, Tesla, right? Like first Elon released a Roadster right? Super expensive. It just kind of wanted, uh, it, it, it led to people wanting the car. And then he slowly reduced the price and started making it more accessible. And once people actually already wanted it, and and you, you saw kind of how alluring the car was, everybody now wants to buy it. Now Tesla is obviously has crazy sales numbers. So I don't think any way is correct inherently. Obviously, there's different paths anybody is can take. But I, but I do think it's super... Uh, naive to say like, oh, well, Solana requirements are high, therefore it's centralized. It's like, no, no, no. Like all tech kind of starts in this phase where it's less accessible at first and then you slowly make it more accessible uh, over time as the demand gets there or the supply gets, right? So like, and, and I think like Ethereum has kind of noticed this too in a sense where like Vitalik has that end game piece where it's like, okay, maybe block production is done from, specialists and maybe slightly more centralized entities but then verification is trustless and and uh, uh censorship resistance is also added right and so those actually ethereum and solana which is what it, it's interesting because they're, they're much more aligned than for example something like a solana versus say or like an ethereum versus like another um eth competitor for example so um anyway uh but i i do certainly agree with um your, your original point about like, you know, is, is that even enough about like 39, 200 validators? Uh, and then the Aptos guys actually comment on this too. And they say, well, actually the number of full nodes doesn't matter. It's actually the stake that matters. And that that could be, um, you know, I, I think it could be, I think there's some merit to that. Um, I don't what's really- the, uh, What's the angle they took on that? Like stake as in the economic security driven by that stake? I think um, I think they were saying like if you have a bunch of nodes with with a low stake, you, you kind of just have like replicated stake, and that doesn't really contribute too much to security, is what they say, or safety, because you can um, like uh, uh, cause like a lattice failure, right? Like if you have some sort of the stake, uh, some some percent of the stake, um, but like I think it's I don't think it's flawed, but I don't think that actually works that well because at the end of the day, like so Tolly's version of this is like. You just need one node, and then let's say that attack does happen, right? You you can reboot with different quorum, and some people think that's just like a big no no, but I don't think you can ever get over that, right? Like I I, I think that's just like a fundamental part of blockchains, where you can't just eliminate the need for social consensus altogether. You can scale it, and I think that's kind of the vision that Tolly has, and I think just. When you play like these games with stake, uh, as opposed to like full nodes, I think it just becomes much more um, like it's. I don't want to misrepresent the position, um, and and so maybe it's it's good that I'll, I'll send the um, uh, their actual tweet directly, and then we can put it in the in the in the notes. Um, I I think it's like okay, but like I think they're focusing a bit too much on like temporary like liveness failures or like. Uh, not even really the liveness failure, but just like a, you know, the leader is just not producing blocks for some temporary amount of time, whatever that amount of time is. And if that's super expensive to do, 
right? The more stakes you have, obviously. And so it's like, why would somebody do that? And to be clear, I think like most people disagree with Tolly and like Solana's version of this, where we like people say like economic security is a meme. It's like, it's not like a meme. It's just like extremely over-indexed on at the expense of other aspects of the chain that also matter. Um, Because like, I think it's super important for proof of work blockchains, right? Like economic security there is, is life or death basically. But on a proof of stake, like or, or like a chain like Solana, the worst you can do with like a s- economic attack is temporary liveness failure at great cost that you only really get once because people will figure out who you are and then you know set up a new quorum. Um, so the economic activity better be really, really worth it there, and maybe it is right. So I can't, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I, I loved your analogy um, at the beginning there of the the Tesla Roadster uh, evolution, right, to like the plaids that we have today and uh, how they got more accessible through time. And it's like you you just have to have that proof of concept and then continue building, essentially, which I think is super helpful context. Um, you mentioned Vitalik at one point there, and I think that's probably a great segue to jump over to some of his tweets. So we'll put the link in the show notes here, but he was talking about Bitcoin, so I don't want to take this too far out of context, but he had an interesting tweet that said, honestly, I'm about 3x less confident in the simplify L1 even at the expense of more complicated L2s concept than I was five years ago. The challenge is that when you trade off the challenge is that when you can trade off between L1 bug risk and L2 bug risk, it's not actually clear that the latter is better. If you have an L1 consensus failure, stuff breaks, core devs scramble for a few days, but you eventually get things uh, things all right again. With an L2 bug, people could permanently lose lots of money. So when I say it can actually be worth adding some pretty sophisticated L1 features to reduce the code burden of L2s and allow them to be reasonably simple, you know, it kind of like that, that seems to be a reasonable position. Um, and again, he's talking about Bitcoin here, right? Because you, there's no, Bitcoin needs another opcode uh, to kind of get these true L2s that we see on Ethereum kind of uh, able to launch on Bitcoin. So it's interesting that he has that perspective and zooming specifically in on the, I'm about 3x less confident in the simplify the L1, even at the expense of more complicated L2s concept. Again, he's talking about Bitcoin, um, but if you just think about that mindset and then look at Ethereum, you know, it doesn't necessarily contradict the, the current roll-up centric roadmap of Ethereum, but it does like consider, you know, is that really how he thinks about Ethereum now? Like, I, I wonder if he's any percentage change different from now and five years ago on Ethereum's particular roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like certainly he, like he is because like, I mean, you, he also released another blog post earlier about enshrining more stuff into uh, uh, the L1 itself. And so like, he obviously can't say anything like, well, I'm less confident in theory. Like, he can't say that. There's just no way he'll get <laughs> he'll get tortured. Uh, but, like, you can obviously read between the lines. Um, you don't need to quantify it, but, like, it's it's quite clear. And, like, many people on Ethereum also agree with this, right? Like, I don't think, like, for example, the scroll guys, like Toral, like, he also agrees with this. Um, and there's other people who who I've talked to from Ethereum who, who agree with it, which, which is to say that, like, Pushing everything off from the L1 to the L2s is like one approach, but that approach I don't think works long term. And and the analogy I use for this is like a race car, right? Like let's say the engine of the race car is the L1. Okay. Now to make the car faster, once you built the engine, maybe you add better aerodynamics, you add different kind of uh, weight coefficients or drag coefficients. Maybe you add really good tires, some hydraulic systems, etc. Okay. Once you do those, though, you have to come back, right? Like the engine at, at some point says, wait a minute, this is physics. I cannot go past this. Okay. And I think once you've already added all these things to take advantage of the existing engine, now if you change the engine, you have to change all these dependencies again to work with the engine. That's insanely complex and brittle and, and, and fragile, right? And it, it can work, right? It certainly can work, but... If, 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 if we are building this industry for the next, you know, many, many decades, then why not just optimize the engine as much as you can first and then work up from there, right? Because it's going to happen at some point anyways. And that's kind of like maybe what Solana folks uh, 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 
that's the philosophy, right? We, I'm like, so for, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, people think I'm like super anti altos or something. That is not the case. I'm actually not against altos at all. I have invested in Eclipse, for example. Uh, what I am against is neglecting the L1 and then going to L2s and then L3s <laughs> that also depend on these L2s that also depend on the L1s, right? That's just, it makes me uncomfortable. And I'm just, the, the philosophy here is optimize the L1 as much as you can first, uh, uh, make it make it robust. And then once you run start running into uh, uh, issues there, Okay, then, you know, if you need the L2, go ahead. Add the L2. It's permissionless blockchain, right? I can deploy an L2 on Solana right now today. Nobody can stop me. Uh, what are they going to do, right? Like, uh, and, and, and so, in fact, um, a few teams were actually debating using Solana as a DA layer. And I actually, uh, I, I, was, I was helping them. And, and so, um, there, this, this, this notion of, of, of like Solana people against, or at least technical Solana people being against L2s is just not really true. It's more so they're against the idea of, moving scaling off of the L1 before the L1 is optimized, right? It's kind of just like an engineering nitpick in a sense. And we can see that Vitalik actually at least sort of start to agree with the direction of that. And I don't think the roll-up centric roadmap is false because like Ethereum does need it based on how they've architected certain things. But I do think the L1 still needs a much more work before you just offload everything to the L2s. Uh, and then now there's going to be, because now with like things like uh, RAS people doing rollups as a service, once you start launching all these rollups that already have certain assumptions they make of the L1, it's going to be super, like, it's like a car, right? Like you, you, you release a car and then, oh, wait, there's a part that we need to actually now rechange. What are we going to do? Well, you either release a new car or you do a recall. There's no easy solutions there. And one, like we already don't have any like... You know, that useful products. In fact, probably the most useful one is Farcaster, which barely even uses the chain, uh, right? And w while that's already the case, why not just 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 bite the bullet and, and do the hard work of scaling from the bottom up or at least building from the bottom up? And then we can obviously get to the L2s. Like, nobody's saying don't do roll-ups. Um, obviously, the problem with that is incentives and VCs and tokens and all this all this stuff, which is the fun side of crypto, which just uh, uh, skews everything. But yeah, that's that's those are kind of my few cents on it. Yeah, yeah. And specifically in the case of Ethereum, I think Anatoly put it best when you know, he, he frequently says they're steering they're steering a multi-billion dollar ship. Like you can't just like overhaul everything at this point. So, you know, part of it is like carrying tech debt. I don't know if you totally like people will definitely disagree calling what they have today tech debt. And I think that's totally reasonable. Um, but, but it's just like more so to the point there is because they were first, they had to go kind of do a lot of, you know, uh, a cave ex exploration and, and paving the way for everybody to come after them. And yeah, people can now look at, okay, well, because they went this way, they're dealing with these externalities. But if we just put a fork in the road from three years ago, start there, we can create our own path. And there's just like so much to be learned there. Um, when it comes with the L2s, I think the stuff that Polygon is doing with the aggregation layer is probably what the end state of a lot of this looks like. But we are still so far away from that. I uh, I bridged over to base. Uh, there was some interesting stuff going on there the other day related to Farcaster. I was playing around with it, had enough and was like, all right, I'm going back to, to Arbitrum. Getting from base to Arbitrum took me two days, <laughs> a series of failed transactions, four different bridges across, um, or sorry, it was uh, Synapse and a Wormhole Portal gave me failed transactions because my Rabi wallet couldn't read the current USDC balance I had, only the Explorer could. Um, and then... Uh, Rabby doesn't connect to cctp.money, so I couldn't uh, use Circle's offering to get across. And the across bridge doesn't support native USDC from base to Arbitrum. So that is like, you know, I, I work in this industry every day. I'm, I'm boots on the ground. I tried four different services and I couldn't get there. It took me two days. Eventually, my transaction just worked on, on one of the liquidity bridges. Um, but my point really is like we... When we look out at the landscape today, we, you, know, you mentioned RAS and, and these conduits and calderas cranking out chains left and right. It's very impressive what they're doing, but we just keep making more chains without any way to connect between the two of them. And that, that's, I think that my weird non-consensus take around all of this is 
every new rollup is introducing more friction and exposing more users to the pains of this very modular world, that it's actually negative EV for each new rollup to, towards the modular thesis, which is, is kind of counterintuitive. You'd think, oh, more chains, more rollups, that's proving that this thing is the right way to go and that it works and people want it. But the reality is the second you're on that chain and you want to go somewhere else, you got to go through a bridging experience. And Stripe, Amazon, Shopify, these like kings of consumer interaction have all put out plenty of research that says you add one process, one more web page load, one more click, one more second to the checkout flow, and you're killing conversion. Users give up. Uh, and now we're adding this like pain, painful, infuriating experience of bridging between two chains. And not only is that an extra process, but it sucks. And yes, sometimes it works perfectly. And I'm sure I'm going to get dunked on because I'm like, oh, you're an idiot. Like you didn't use XYZ bridge. Like when I have to go tell my normal friends of, hey, come check this thing out on chain. Like it'll be fun. And then they go through this experience. It's embarrassing. Uh, and so yeah. if I could like go back in time and try to like change the course of the future, that is probably what I would try to change is like pushing interop before we go creating all these chains and like the ibc over in the cosmos ecosystem does a pretty good job you know it's not perfect uh like for example relayers are not incentivized so if you want to run a relayer for your chain uh you know you kind of have to do it out of the kindness of your heart or, or usually like the core teams or some of the the uh you know long-standing members of the cosmos ecosystem will do this uh, for chains, but like, you know, I, I joked about bridging to say earlier, like they had a relayer issues and like getting there was impossible. So, you know, IBC still has some growing pains, but broadly, that's probably one of the better standards. I know Avalanche uh, and their warp messaging or AWM is quite similar and try good. That's like based for subnet to subnet communication. Um, but ETH doesn't really have that today. And I, I'm, I'm like worried about how the evolution of that is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're a researcher. Uh, you 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 are in the absolute forefront of the industry. And if, if you find the bridging UX complicated, then it's complicated. There's no other way to put that. Like, is there like uh, another solution that somebody knows that might be better? Okay, sure. But that's you know you can't blame the market for uh, your solution is not surfacing properly. And um, yeah, I think I tweeted something like. The number of L2 is increasing, like as as N increases, the probability of success for Solana goes up, or, or something like that. Um, be, because, um, yeah, like pe- people think you you can just abstract all of this away from like all everyone, but it's like I'm extremely skeptical of that because of the sheer number of permutations and security assumptions and trust assumptions. Like with Web2, you can abstract this much easier because you don't care if something is centralized in Web2 or decentralized or has whatever trust assumptions. But in crypto, you do, right? The second you add a weaker link, your entire trust model is different, right? Like if I'm abstracting over like all these rollups, all these uh, bridges, but then maybe one of these bridges has like one multi-sig, like now that's totally different. And that's a that's a big risk or, or central uh, uh, point of risk. And I do think you can obviously improve the state of abstraction and, and aggregation as well. But I think fully eliminating it, like the friction, is I don't think that happens. Uh, I just because just as an engineer, like the amount of things you need to abstract over, first of all, that's crazy enough with the amount of rollups. But but also the amount of like those things are always changing. We're in an early industry. Right. It's not like TCP or, or like IP where these are like neutral protocols. These are companies that have raised VC funding with tokens and they're going to move at their pace. They have different dependencies and you have to abstract over all these different things with different dependencies, different incentives in an adversarial environment where everyone's trying to steal your money and hack literally everything. I mean, bridges are where all the hacks happen. Um, while we don't have any products. <laughs> Okay, so you put all those things together and I'm like, "Mm, you know, maybe I I do think it gets there at some point, but I think it's much longer than people actually think personally. Uh, Either that or what you need to do, which some more reasonable people that I agree with at least say is you have Arbitrum and you have another L2 
And like what 99% of all activity goes through those massive rollups. Okay. That's really the only other approach in my view. Right. So like there's the approach of Pareto distribution of like two major L2s or three major L2s. And okay, that's fine. There's the other approach of thousands of rollups. That's, I, I just cannot see that working. Um, at least within a reasonable time frame. Um, and then the other approach is obviously L1s, and maybe the L1s are kind of interconnected in some way. Um, I think the first and last points there, like multiple massive rollups and then multiple massive L1s work. I think that's where the industry goes. The thousands of rollups thesis, I cannot possibly see that working. Um within a reasonable time frame again. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. It'll be really like they're, they're, the thousand roll-ups thesis will, the million roll-up thesis, we're going to see it in full force this cycle. There is no doubt about it. There will there will be a lot of roll-ups. Um, but again, my, my base case is that that introduces the frictions associated with that outcome to users. And it'll be, it's up in the air on how the users respond to that. But uh, last thing I want to hit on here is actually a specific L2 because I've kind of had a, uh, a, I don't know if a a come to Jesus moment's the right term, but I had a a change of tune, let's say. Uh, So Blast, horrible launch strategy, vile marketing. They called people pre-rich for depositing into their uh, one-way bridge contract that didn't have an L2 attached to it. You know, there was no product. Um, That really frustrated me. And they had like, MLM style images of the referral scheme, not illegal, but questionable morally. And it's just like, it was frustrating. And it was a very hard for me to chew on that. You know, this was heat of the bear market. Uh, definitely the bear market blues were at play here. We don't have apps, we don't have products. And like now we just have this scammy L- L2 launching. But yeah. Then I've, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. First, I thought it was a scam. Then I was like, damn, now it's a $2 billion scam. But my my realization now is like, this is just a casino. And casinos don't have like morals that I necessarily align with. They, you know, they advertise that you're going to come in here and make a bunch of money and games that are like largely rigged against you. And, you know, strip clubs put attractive women on their signs. Like it's not like there is moral advertising or questionably moral advertising that exists everywhere in the world. Um, so I think I kind of felt guilty to just being pissed at the time uh, because if you, so they just did a builder's competition. They had 47 winners from this competition uh, about people that are, you know, pitching apps to build on the platform and they accumulated over $2 billion in deposits, deposits and they, they used this as leverage to you know, show off why it's exciting to go build on this chain, right? They, in, their, in their builder competition, they had this quote, which is, this is your chance to get in front of all of our TVL and our depositors, right? That's not a, I guess it's more of a paraphrase. But nonetheless, they, are, they were using this as like, hey, come build here. Look, we have these users. And at the end of the day... You know, they're rewarding users for depositing into their, you know, one-way bridge contract that doesn't have an L2 attached to it yet. They're rewarding you. They're like, they're, there will be an airdrop allocation for you. Um, and like, that's all anybody is doing right now in DeFi. So to me, it's like, okay, it really wasn't that different from everything else. Sure, I don't like agree with it, but love it or hate it, it worked. And there's more winning applications in this competition than exist or are, that are listed on DeFi Llama on Tron. Sui, Manta, Aptos, Say, Starknet, and Near. Like that's that is proof of the pudding that this thing is going to work. Now, are all these going to be revolutionary applications? Absolutely not. But they uh, they're probably going to get used. And again, like everybody is kind of launching these applications in this like gamified context, incentives galore. Like it's just going to be like a DeFi summer farming casino and. Sure, that's not going to revolutionize the world and put crypto in front in in more people's hands, and like that's you know that's not the greatest thing outcome in the world, but like it's gonna it's gonna be used, it's gonna be active, and again, like as an analyst, I got to pay attention to it, whether I want to or not. Like there will be activity there, and it will be worth looking at what people are doing, and there will probably be some lessons to be learned uh, in the incentive side of this, and what works and what doesn't. Now, I think the last piece on this that I was definitely guilty of being very mad was there's no way they're doing anything useful on the tech side and like revolutionizing how to build a rollup, but they don't need to (laughs) like, that's not the world we live in. We just talked about rollups as a service providers that like can build chains in a matter of clicks in in seconds. Right. Uh, So something like a standard OP stack chain with Celestia underneath is going to do the trick here. And uh, it's just very interesting to me how I was super upset about this at first, but I've kind of realized like they had a playbook, 
They executed it to perfection. Sure, I don't morally agree with a lot of the things that happened, but at the end of the day, it's probably nothing was illegal and it's it, it worked. They have $2 billion in deposits. That's like launching at definitely in the top five of, of L2s by TVL, but maybe even the top three. I haven't looked at the numbers currently, but it's it's impressive work. Like, okay, so look, look at kind of maybe two different approaches to this. One is that what happened just now, which is all these deposits were, were processed and there's not builder competitions and everything is going fine. Okay, the second one of this is that it actually blew up okay, because due to some weird anon multi-sig, scam, rug, whatever. Um, now, obviously, we don't see that aspect because it didn't happen, but the risk of that was very real. And, you know, just because I didn't die from Russian roll at once doesn't mean <laughs> Russian roll it's a good game to play. Um, and I'm not saying, like, Blast is even that bad. I think, like, the ethics are certainly questionable. I, I don't think it would have been a scam. Uh, I just thought it was morally super weird uh and but but you know i i I never thought that they would just like rob people uh there would probably be like some um trust assumptions that were maybe uh uh, like for example like like bridget hacked right like uh maybe the multi-sig people we don't know who they are that's a weird assumption that you're asking people to make and but but i want to be like very very clear in, in how i think personally and it's like very inspired by let's say taleb which is that like just because something didn't happen does not mean it's, it's a good idea is, is kind of how I think about it. And that's super important in crypto where people are like, oh, you know, I, I made money from this. Therefore, I will ape on the shitcoin as well. And then now you lost everything. Okay. Um, okay. The second part is, um, yeah, it, it works, obviously. Uh, I think it, it, that's that's undeniable, right? Like you look at the data, it works. Um, they, they got a good amount of deposits. They got uh, good developer interest, good mind share as well. And I don't agree with the ethics of it, uh, obviously, but who, who gives a shit about that, uh, right? Like, you know, I care about it, but I, there's a whole market that, that doesn't. And so you can't really like, get mad at the market. That's just what it is. Obviously, those people exist and Blast exists to fill that segment. So it is what it is. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is um, like, for example, when people say like, oh, well, like, here's this TBL that you get access to all these users for your, for your products. If you are actually a product builder, you'll kind of be like, wait a minute, what do you mean? Who are these users? Well, the segment of those users is people who want to make money. That's a huge market, and that's probably not who your product is targeted towards. So like the other thing that's like kind of on a tangent is in crypto, people like are super, super bad at segmenting their markets, right? Like Web2, like normal Silicon Valley startups are extremely obsessed with segmenting the market properly for their ideal customer personas whereas in crypto it's like oh well if they want to make money they're in my market it's like no no that's why you don't have pmf <laughs> you need to like be like wait a minute like farcaster does a good job of this right like farcaster targeted the right people like builders over a long period of time um who want to jam on crypto thoughts and, and ideas like it's a decentralized social platform and they start with a very narrow specific segment of that market they just say, oh, everybody wants decentralized social. Our TAM is three gazillion dollars. And if we get even 1% of that, we'll be set. It's like, no, no, no. You need to just define that segment very well first. Um, but, but like, you know, uh, I, I do think, you know, ho- hopefully, uh, like Blast did, did uh, obviously work empirically in terms of what they've uh, said they were going to do. Uh, I still think it's, pretty morally reprehensible uh i, I think like pac-man actually followed me and then i, I was like fucking blast like i just started shitting on it and just like instantly unfollowed me uh and um i i think i'm still i'm still not a fan um i think things like arbitrum are much better right like arbitrum has proofs uh they have uh, a known multi-sig like public you can know who the people are it's not an on like optimism as well but you know uh, whatever uh and I think like you're already kind of cutting some sort of introducing additional risk with an L2, like as Vitalik said earlier in the episode, right? Like where where it's not clearly better or clear where putting on the L2 is less risk. It actually might be more risk. But then if you now make the L2s even riskier, where you don't have proofs, you don't have a functioning L2, you just have a bridge and you don't know who controls it. And it's like some MLM scheme. Now we're getting a little weird. Like I think... If I were to use an L2 or build out an L2, I would almost certainly use Arbitrum as opposed to literally anything else out there right now. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with your sentiment there. And I think you brought up the user base here, which is a great point. This is probably the most reflexive user base you could ever come across. So if you're a long-term builder, like that's not who you want using your product, right? You want power users that will be there forever, that will fall in love with your product and can, you know, be consumers for, for, for life. Um, that is probably not what the bla- average blast, depo- even the upper quartile of blast of depositors are going to be like. They uh, they are there to farm, and that's like a like that's kind of why my, my framework on this is just a casino. Like that's what it is. People are going to go there. They're going to try to build fun games that uh, like gamified things, uh, mostly probably related to farming. Um, kind of like honestly, what DeFi Summer was. Like I think that you're probably going to see a lot of the same stuff get run back round two. Um, so is that going to change the world again? No. And back to our previous discussion at the beginning of this podcast, we need more like meaningful applications on the consumer side. Don't expect those to, to kind of be there. Uh, but I changed my tune on it and I am paying attention. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at, but, uh, we covered a lot today, man. Anything else you want to, you want to jam on before we leave it for the audience? No, I think that that was good. This was an awesome discussion today, Mert. And uh, thank you to the audience for listening to my first Lightspeed Roundup. And uh, really excited to keep jamming these out. Uh, Until next time. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening.